Let's bow heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this tremendous privilege, this honor of gathering together as family this evening. Father, thank you for giving us the Word of God. Thank you for encouraging us and giving us the time and the space to learn from it and to digest it and to be set free by it, Father. Your Word is all-powerful. It is the very name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, someone we want to share with the world from corner to corner, Father. What a privilege that is. On that note, Father, we pray for those that are still lost in this world, that we might be given an opportunity to evangelize them before it's too late, Father, that we might have additional brothers and sisters in Christ. What a glorious day that would be. Even the angels would rejoice. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to make such things like that a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, part 10 of God Sees the Heart, but the World Sees the Choices We Make. Hopefully you're seeing what the Spirit's trying to convey. Very practical in nature. Um, <clears throat> God seeing the heart, I suppose, from God's perspective is very practical. But from the world's perspective, there's not a large practicality to it. There's not a whole lot of obviousness uh, to it. Um, so just keep that in mind, because that's going to be the nature, if you would, or the theme of this evening's message. Sunday's message, uh, as well as Tuesday's, uh, nice uh, wrap-up, Scott, by the way, but Sunday's message had a lot to it, um, because there's been a lot of moving parts to ponder along the way in our lessons. As I mentioned um, at the time, there are some big topics that the Spirit has been working out in our souls, and that's, of course, to God's glory. But at the end of the day, what we need to understand is that, as per our current series title, uh, which states God sees the heart, but the world sees the choices we make, there are very real practical ramifications to our actions or lack thereof. Practical ramifications to our actions. And it's an interesting thing because there are whole sort of sects of Christianity that have very little, if any, practical fruit. And they don't even teach it. They teach that it's just enough to learn the Word of God. And magically, God's going to use, I guess, some other form or some other instrument to enact His grace to His glory uh, in a world that's filled with human beings. Um, so I think that's what the Spirit's really getting at as of late, the second part of the series titled, But the World Sees the Choices We Make which are really practical things to think about, uh, including, did you guys hear that? What was that? Including things we think, say, and do. Is that, is that her? You got to shut that off, ma'am. Okay, thank you. There are very real practical ramifications to our actions. That is what the Spirit's really been getting at. Not leaving it just, you know, between us and God. There's an awful lot of things that go on, uh, obviously in our prayer life, obviously in our everyday life between ourselves and God, but God calls us 
to live out the spiritual life, to be practical about it. And so these practical ramifications to our actions, these include uh, things we say, things we think, and things we do. Think, say, and do. All three of these things may be categorized as actions. When you think, that's an action. When you say, it's an action. When you do, it's an action. It's interesting because there are two errors worth noting on this point up here on the board, think, say, or do. Two primary errors, uh, and we're just going to categorize it this way for the sake of simplicity this evening. Religious Christians have bad thinking, but say and do righteous things. Proverbs 30, 12 to 14, Matthew 6, 1, Luke 18, 8, or 11 to 12. Again, religious Christians have bad thinking, but say and do righteous things. In other words, their heart isn't really any good, but they're doing all the right things, so to speak. And on the flip side is the pompous Christian who have, quote-unquote, good thinking, maybe not a lot of knowledge, maybe they're puffed up, but they say and do nothing righteous or very little. And so there's these two camps. Some people are religious, their thinking's bad, but they do a whole lot of things that look good, and God says, that's no good. And then there's pompous Christians who have good thinking, have the root, the knowledge of it, but never do anything or say anything. In other words, they have no real practical fruit. That's John 13, 34 to 35, James 1, 25 to 27, 1 John 3, 17 to 18. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we've all been a part of either or even both of these groups at some point in our lives. I know I can relate to both personally. I went from a religious background to a pompous background to now. I can relate to both. So I think if we're honest, most of us can at least relate to one of these points on the board. Let's look at the supporting passages now. Again, the religious Christians have bad thinking, but say and do righteous things. Go to Proverbs 30, verse 12. Proverbs 30, verse 12. So we're going to talk about individuals who are sort of wise in their own eyes, um, do all the right things, maybe even say the right things, but their heart is no good, and God has no tolerance for that. And so he's calling it out. And we have to make sure that we don't even have little micro-threads in our own lives of religion, saying and doing all the right things, but our heart is bad. Proverbs 30, verse 12, There is a kind who is pure in his own eyes, yet is not washed from his filthiness. There is a kind, oh, how lofty are his eyes, and his eyelids are raised in arrogance. Sounds like religion, doesn't it? There is a kind of man whose teeth are like swords, and his jaw teeth, his jaw teeth like knives, to devour the afflicted from the earth and the needy from among men. I think of verse 14, how it describes the religious folks who consume others. You see, uh, in religion, it's all about stratification. And so for one person to percolate up to the pop, top of the stack, someone else has to go down. And if there's any kind of internal struggle, the people with more, quote, power will push other people down. And that's what religion does. Go to Matthew 6, verse 1. Matthew 6, verse 1. Jesus had something to say about this kind of attitude religious-type attitude, and we have to make sure that we don't fall prey to these things. It's not like we're immune to them. We certainly can't act like mere men. 
We certainly have a flesh that gravitates towards religious things. Matthew 6.1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. In other words, say and do all the right things, so to speak, but your heart's no good. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. How about Luke 18.11? Go there. Luke 18.11. This one we're pretty familiar with nowadays. Again, the point on the board, point number one, religious Christians have bad thinking, but they say and do righteous things. Luke 18.11. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. And you know how Jesus felt about the Pharisees. He said, yeah, you might be doing things that look good, but you're a whitewashed tomb. And so that's a problem. Okay, so that's point number one on the board. Point number two is the other side, the other camp, where people get pompous. They are puffed up with knowledge, but they don't do anything. They have no practical fruit. They just sort of lounge around and say, God's going to take care of it. Yeah, you're an instrument. You're supposed to be an instrument for him. And so there's this whole camp of thinking that you just sort of sit around and watch God do his wonders while he's trying to, or his intent is to do them through you. Pompous Christians have good thinking, quote-unquote, but say and do nothing righteous. Go to James 1.25. James 1.25. James 1, verse 25. We had an awful lot from the Spirit on a phrase that I dubbed functional love, that love actually functions. Love is something that is to be maintained even amongst each other. James 1, 25. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep ourselves oneself unstained by the world. That's doing. That's good fruit, not just talking a big game with that tongue. Go to 1 John 3.17. 1 John 3.17 1 John 3.17 I've really, really, really learned to have an affinity for the Apostle John and his writings. I know that it was the Spirit who inspired him, but um, I think it's just the nature of our lessons over the past few years. Just the Gospel of John is the first book I want to give anybody. Anyone that's brand new, uh, to the faith, it's the first book I want to give people. In uh, First John, uh, same author, so it's the same basic uh, thought process you see in in this particular individual, uh, just more um, practical, let's say. First John three seventeen. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children. Let us not love with word or tongue, but in deed and truth. In other words, don't just be a uh, windbag. 
Don't just talk a big game like a pompous Christian does who's puffed up with knowledge. That's great. You've got to have knowledge as a start of wisdom. We're going to see that again this evening. You have to have knowledge, uh, at least some knowledge, to have wisdom. That's great. It's great to have it. But if that becomes the basis, if you would, of your um, evangelism, your discipleship, all that stuff, you have a problem. Because look at the Apostle John said, the Apostle of Love, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Now go to John 13.34. John 13.34. In other words, what John's saying is, you know what? True love, it expresses itself. It does things for people. It reaches out across chasms. It's, it's gracious. It's merciful. It's forgiving. It's all these things. Because all we do in life, right, is collide with one another. And there has to be some reconciliation, some redemptive process that happens between human beings. It's called love. But if it's not functioning, if it's dysfunctional love, there is no mercy, there's no grace, there's no forgiveness, there's no, you name it. John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. Again, the world sees the choices we make. Do you see the functional aspect here? This is what Jesus was saying. Yeah, you know, God sees your heart. That's good. But the world sees the choices you make. And Jesus Christ said, By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What, are they going to just assume it? Or are they going to see it? What was Jesus saying? Obviously, it's implied that they're going to see something between two people with Christ's love who, is, who are expressing a functional love, and that bears good fruit. So again, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's sad. The second point is awful. Um, in many ways, I can deal with point number one more than I can deal with point number two nowadays. Why? Because in my experience... The most serious attacks I've had to endure have, been come, have come from this second type of Christian. Literally, pompous jackasses who are puffed up with knowledge. And all they really want to do is become like ivory tower morons that just wrangle over things and beat each other up and look, they become like Christian police even where their greatest goal in life seems to be to tear other Christians down. That's not love. But there you go. Again, religious Christians have bad thinking, but say and do religious or righteous things, quote-unquote. Pompous Christians have, quote, good thinking, but, quote, say, do nothing righteous. Again, the reason for that little sidebar was to highlight common errors in the Christian ranks. What the Bible teaches us is that true religion permeates and is evidenced by all three activities, thinking, saying, and doing. True religion, as John would describe, or James would describe it, uh, true religion permeates and is evidenced by all three activities, thinking, saying, and doing. Neither Jesus nor his disciples ever had a problem expounding upon this basic fact. They didn't have a problem with it. They say, yeah, if you're 
If you truly love, if you abide in my love, you will not turn a blind eye to someone in need. You will not do this, but you will do that. You'll think it, you'll say it, you'll do it. You'll add ointment maybe to someone's soul when they need it through word. You might give them scripture. I mean, that's something you might do. You might just send them some scripture. You going, I hear you're going through something. I know you're going through something. How about this passage or this one? Well, that's actually doing, isn't it? Be surprised how many people don't do that. Again, neither Jesus nor his disciples ever had a problem expounding upon thinking, saying, or doing. I mean, it was obvious to them. So neither should we. Go to Proverbs 11, 1. Proverbs 11, verse 1. Now again, we're trying to focus our attention on the practical side of things. And so if you're convinced, and you should be by now, that the Bible teaches about functional love, I mean, we just saw Jesus talk about it, then you have to have a certain amount of integrity to that truth. So now you, you know the truth. What are you going to do with it? Proverbs 11.1, 1, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just way is His delight. When pride comes, then comes dishonor, but with the humble is wisdom. The integrity of the upright will guide them, but the crookedness of the treacherous will destroy them. The integrity of the upright will guide them. So the point the Spirit's making here is that integrity to truth begins with accepting it in the first place, accepting it. So if the Bible says, think, say, or do, then in order to fulfill God's desire for us, we must indeed think, say, do. We have to have integrity to it, in other words. If the Bible says this is what it looks like, this is what love looks like, this is what functional love looks like, it expresses itself in thinking, saying, and doing, then we have to accept that. And that is God's desire. And we have to have integrity to it, because that's God's desire. So this has been a big part of God sees the heart, but the world sees the choices we make. There are very practical, very real things for us to think about. Now, one of the recurring themes in our messages over the past few years has been this distinction between abiding in love versus abiding in fear. Because we have remnants, we have the vestiges, if you would, of sin itself still in us. And we can be influenced by fear itself. And since love and fear are like oil and water, um, it takes us away from uh, the blessings of abiding in love. So we have Holy Scripture that speaks directly to the nature of these two domains. We looked at this on Sunday and Tuesday as well, I believe, up here on the board. What about fear and love? What about love and fear? 1 John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. Again, the key phrase, there is no fear in love. And so the Spirit took us on this little journey starting on Sunday, got us thinking about the uh, mutual exclusivity of love and fear. That these are completely different 
domains. If I was in math and I was doing Venn diagrams, I don't know if anybody remember, they wouldn't overlap. There would be no football in between. There would be no overlapping of the sets. They are completely distinct, exclusive from one another. Love is Christ's domain. When we put on the Lord Jesus Christ, a la Romans 13, 14, we are motivated by love. And when you're motivated by love, it's functional, right? But what about when you're motivated by fear? Now you're talking about something dysfunctional. The love you had for a person, all of a sudden, you know how this goes, right? Say you really love someone, and all of a sudden fear creeps in. Well, what used to be a perfectly symbiotic relationship between you and this other person, all of a sudden there's a kink, there's a fracture, because one of you is afraid, one of you is scared, and all of a sudden the love that was pure becomes dysfunctional. And that's when all hell breaks loose. And then, you know, God forbid, the other person starts getting infected by the fear, if you would, that you're sort of giving off, emanating, and now they jump in the fray. And then it just... God doesn't want that. Love is Christ's domain. Fear is the flesh's domain. When we put on the old self, compare that to Ephesians 4, 22 to 24, we are motivated by fear. Now, the thing, motivation just means mo, you know, motive, move, right? I'm sure it's a Latin or a Greek root that just means to move, right? To motivate. And that means we're moved by fear. We're pushed by fear, even into making bad decisions, into doing things that are no good for us. And the world's watching. And the world's watching. So in our last two messages, the Spirit used the old push-pull analogy to help drive this point home. In essence, the message is that a pull lifestyle, being drawn to God by His love, for starters, is markedly better than a push one. <clears throat> the end goals are the same, right? But it's much better to be pulled. You'll have way more blessings in your life if you're drawn to God by love. It's the same thing in any relationship. I mean, do you want to be pushed into love? Do you want someone to try to manipulate you into love? No, that's not even healthy. You want to be drawn to someone. But the flesh is scared and it's, 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 it's manipulative, it's controlling, it's all these things and it just, it just ruins it. The prior which is the pull mechanism, is a function of maturity, the latter a function of adolescence. The running example the Spirit's been using to drive this point home has been regarding love, something we can all relate to. I mean, who hasn't experienced love in their life? I mean, come on. Without rehashing all the Scripture, we have concluded the following from Luke 17, 1-4 uh, as a driving passage. Uh, this is what functional love looks like. The Luke reference on the board deals with forgiveness in context, a topic that exudes love. And we're going to pause here for a moment because it's a big deal. Forgiveness is a big deal. I teach, um, whenever I marry a couple, I always include forgiveness. I've even taught it, I think, maybe as like a pillar of marriage. 
that if you don't have forgiveness in a marriage, it's going to be hell. There has to be forgiveness or else the marriage is going to be toxic. It's going to be awful. There has to be forgiveness. So this particular point um, in Luke 17, 1-4 drove this point on the board. That is, or This is what functional love looks like. Again, it deals with forgiveness, uh, a topic that exudes love. I'd argue that forgiveness, and we're going to talk about the nuances of it this evening, but forgiveness is one of the first clear signs of functional love. Forgiveness is one of the first clear signs of functional love. Functional love. One of the first clear signs. Why? Because as a rule of life, we are really good at hurting each other. I mean, marriage is a perfect example, but in general, we're really good at hurting each other. And that's life. The only ointment for the soul is forgiveness. I mean, you can't undo something you, you said or you did. You can't undo it. So the, the only healing ointment is forgiveness, which really is an expression of love. So I was thinking about this. <clears throat> Have you ever known someone, and maybe it's you, maybe it's you, that, quote, says they forgive someone who's wronged them? I forgive them. But underneath the surface is a seething malcontent. Something unholy. Something that eats away at this person. Oh, I totally forgive them. But do you really forgive them? Have you really forgiven them? Where's the anger coming from? Are you functioning in love? Or are you functioning in fear? Well, if I forgive them, this might happen. I don't know. You fill in the blanks. Why don't people forgive others? Loss of control, maybe? I don't know. People, you know people are. They think because they hold something over someone, like forgiveness, they're controlling them somehow. They're trying to, they feel a sense of manipulation or control over a situation. And all those things are from the flesh. Those are things that keep you up at night. You want to you stay up at night? You want to get no sleep? The next time someone wounds you, don't forgive them. All you're going to do is sit there in bed and like plan out their death. <laughs> right? I mean, isn't that, isn't that what happens? <laughs> right? So the question is, have you ever known someone, maybe it's you, that says they forgive someone who's wronged them, but underneath there's something seething, something not right? That's because, and I've taught you this before, up here on the board, an unforgiving heart is an unloving heart. An unforgiving heart is an unloving heart. The last thing true love wants is for there to be animosity between people. That's the last thing love wants, correct? It wants reconciliation. It just says, can we just get by this thing? 
can we just talk about it? That's why you should never let the sun go down on your anger either. People are famous for that. It's like, no, talk it out. Stop running away. Talk it out. If something's bothering you, get to the table. That's what love does. Love seeks to reconcile imperfect people. I mean, isn't that what God did for us? God so loved the world, he reconciled. And we have the ministry now of reconciliation given to us. We call that the gospel, the Great Commission. We have that ministry on us now, on our lives, of reconciliation. Saying God loves you so much, he just wants you to bring it to himself. He wants to restore good, friendly relations. That's what reconciliation means, right? He wants to restore friendly relations with you. Check this out. He even died on the cross to make it happen. That's what love does. You see how practical? Was this practical or not? Come on. Was there anything more practical than, than the cross? I mean, Jesus just didn't go from heaven. Nah, 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 nah. I'm dying on the cross right now. I imagine it's going to be really painful. I know it's necessary, Father, but I don't really want to do it. So let me just think about it. Nope. Nope. It's not what he said at all. He humbled himself. That's what we have to do. We have to get over our own arrogance because that's what love does. An unforgiving heart is an unloving heart. Again, I'd argue that forgiveness is one of the first clear signs of functional love. It's how you know that you're functioning in love. When your heart says, you know what? I hate this animosity. I hate it. I don't want there to be animosity. So as far as it depends on me, I want to be at peace with all men. Again, to our previous point up here on the board, 1 John 4.18, there is no fear in love, but when perfect love casts out fear, etc., etc. So these two things are mutually exclusive. And that's a baseline theology, a doctrine, if you would, that we need to keep front and center because that's what the Spirit's using to describe thinking, saying, and doing. How He's qualifying the things we think, say, and do because the world's watching. Are we functioning in the sphere of love? Or are we functioning in the sphere of fear? Because that's what they are. These are whole domains, but they're mutually exclusive. And the world's watching. Forgiveness is a function of love. This we know. Genuine forgiveness demands thinking, saying, and doing. Genuine forgiveness demands thinking, saying, and doing. Not just saying you forgive someone, but also thinking it. Not just thinking you forgive someone, but also doing it, also saying it. Another perfect example from the lips of our Lord, go to Matthew 5.23. Matthew 5.23, I hope you see what the Spirit's saying. <clears throat> Matthew 5.23, forgiveness is a big deal, folks, a really big deal. And it's an expression of love. Matthew 5.23 Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Now this is interesting. I want you to concentrate. Notice how Jesus is speaking to the offending party. 
not the offended. He's speaking to the offending party, the one who wronged someone else. And he's saying, no, 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 I don't want you in that estate. I don't want you in that state of mind. I, I want you to go be reconciled first before you come back to the altar. We often think about forgiveness from the offended perspective only, as in we need to forgive others. We often, that's our default. At least it is for me. Uh, when I think about forgiveness, it's usually, well, I need to forgive others. But Jesus said, no, you need to go seek forgiveness from others. If you're the offending party, so why am I making splitting hairs here? Because forgiveness, well, I need you to concentrate. Forgiveness is a sphere. It's an attitude. It's an idea. It's a concept. It's like love. It's a whole thing. Forgiveness is, a, is an attitude. Think of it that way. I want to give you this up here on the board. Maybe this will help. The sphere of forgiveness. We ought never think of forgiveness as merely transactional. I think a lot of people think that way. Especially little kids. I forgive my sister. I, did. I said I'm sorry. That was a transaction, right? Then why are you so angry still? Why are you like this? I forgave him. Are you sure you forgave him? I think there's more to this process than you just saying something. Because that's forgiveness. Forgiveness is a sphere. It's, um, yeah, it's an attitude. It's, a, it's an attitude of reconciliation. It's, it's, it's motivated by love. And, and it's not partial. Do you understand? Like, God's not partial. It's not partial to the offended and the offender. It just wants reconciliation. It just wants healing. That's the mature attitude. That's the loving attitude of true forgiveness. It's not interested even in pointing fingers. I mean, the obvious is obvious, but it's not interested in holding something over someone's head and saying, you wronged me. Kiss my feet. <laughs> and then I'll forgive you. For days. Then maybe, just maybe, I'll grace you out with my forgiveness. That's complete garbage. And that is fear operating. And you can figure out the details of that. That's not love. Love only cares about reconciling. We have the, the supreme example at the cross. Love wants to reconcile. That's why Jesus was saying, hey, don't come here with that attitude. Go be reconciled first, and then come back. So we ought not ever think of forgiveness as merely transactional, but rather we ought to think of it the way we think of love, spherical. I hope you know what I mean by that. We pursue forgiveness as a way of life, whether we are the offender or the offended. We just want anything that is disruptive to love to be out of the way. We just want whatever it is that's disrupting God's desire for love to be present out of the way. Whatever it takes. If I'm the one that offended, I'm going to go try to make right. If I'm, I mean, if, if I'm the offender, I'm going to go try to make right. If I'm offended, I'm going to forgive. Why? To get it behind us. 
Isn't that what Jesus did on the cross? He got all the sins behind us. Was it fair to him? No. No, it wasn't fair to him. He's perfect. We're awful. But that's what love does. Again, we ought never think of forgiveness as merely transactional, but rather we ought to think of it the way we think of love, spherical. We pursue forgiveness as a way of life, whether we are the offender or the offended. This echoes back to our previous standing principle about love versus fear. If we're abiding in the domain of fear, which is the flesh, we are interested in forgiveness, other than for some perceived benefit to the flesh itself. Oh, we might forgive someone if we perceive a benefit. I guess I have to. And I was thinking about that. You know, like a fleshly child forgives their sibling. They often do so because of the fear or they fear the repercussions of not doing so. Maybe it's their parents, you know, they ride them about it. Or maybe they even lose their summertime play partner. I mean, we grew up, there weren't, you know, video games and 40,000 TV channels just to zombie out to. It was, oh, crap, I got my little sister who's like four years younger than me. I guess today I'm going to have to go do cartwheels or do nothing. Cartwheels? Tea parties? I've actually done that stuff because she was the only one around. And she's a little girl, so I'm like, and we always fight, but you know what I'm saying. But what if we fought and never reconciled? Where's our play partner for the day? You know what I'm saying? Is that right attitude? No. That's fleshly attitude. I guess I'll forgive. I guess I'll, you know, seek forgiveness because it's not good for me in the long term if I don't. (laughs) That's no good, is it? The point is that the human flesh will proclaim forgiveness if it perceives there's a benefit to doing so, for selfish reasons. However, Christ's love seeks forgiveness like the point on the board, not for selfish reasons, but for the sake of love itself. Get whatever it is that's disrupting love out of the way. There's a splinter in my relationship with my best friend. Get it out. I don't care who put it there. I don't care if you took a piece of pressure-treated wood and went on my arm, and there it is. I don't even care. Just help me get it out. Let's get it out together if we got to. Oh, and you owe me an ice cream sundae. On the board, the sphere of forgiveness. We ought never think of forgiveness as merely transactional. That is a huge mistake. But rather, we ought to think of it the way we think of love, spherical. We pursue forgiveness as a way of life, whether we are the offender or the offended. Again, the instigating passage for that was Matthew 5.23. Let's read it quickly. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Speaking of altars of sacrifice, consider the one that Jesus made on the cross. Consider how much hung on the cross that day. 
Some say, as we have from this pulpit, that love itself hung on that cross. And why was the cross necessary? For the forgiveness of sins. Because <laughs> that's what love wants. Get whatever it is that's alienating these people from functional love. Get it out of the way. That's what the cross was. Why was it necessary? The forgiveness of sins. Love hung on a cross for the forgiveness of sins. You're supposed to carry your own cross. You're supposed to go out every day. Does love hang on your cross? Do you forgive others? That's the pattern. Pick up your own cross, says the Word of God. Well, what does that mean? Forgiveness? Yep. Seek whatever it is to get to love. And I'm telling you right now, without forgiveness, you'll never get there. You can't function there. You'll be dysfunctional if you're riddled with unforgiveness. And that, my friends, is a function of the flesh. Like I've been saying here this evening, on love and forgiveness up here on the board, they spring from the same vine. And that vine is Jesus Christ, John 15, 5. They spring from the same vine. Love and forgiveness, same vine. You don't think Jesus had both love and forgiveness on his heart when he said, Tetelestai? Of course he did. Love sent them there. Forgiveness was accomplished. That was the function of the cross. Christ's love and forgiving heart were evidenced on the cross. We celebrate his heart when we partake in communion. 1 Corinthians 11, 28-29, up here on the board. I am the vine, John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This is why Paul stated that we are to examine ourselves. Speaking of communion service, Paul stated that we are to, quote, examine ourselves before we partake in communion service. It's not any different than the altar situation that Jesus just described. Go get yourself right. Look at yourself. If you examine yourself and in that moment you realize you've offended someone, drop everything and go be reconciled and then come back. We'll be here. <laughs> it's the same thing with communion service. You're supposed to examine yourself before you even partake. Go to 1 Corinthians 11.28. 11.28. Why would he want you to examine yourself? Well, look at what we're celebrating. Look at what we're celebrating. We're celebrating Jesus' own heart when we celebrate communion service, the person, the work, his love, his forgiveness. 1 Corinthians 11, 28. Remember when he begged, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Verse 28. But a man must examine himself. And in doing so, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. Hmm. What is Paul getting at here? 
Communion service, think of it this way. Communion service is the celebration of the embodiment of love's expression of forgiveness. Let me say it again. Communion service is the celebration of the embodiment of love's expression of forgiveness. When we partake, we must examine ourselves. We just read that in 1 Corinthians 11. When we partake, we must examine ourselves. This same passage uses the word judgment to describe the estate of our souls when partaking in communion. Verse 29, let's read it again. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. In other words, what are you celebrating? Where's your heart right now? What are you celebrating? You're celebrating love and forgiveness, but you still have to reconcile to someone else? you still got some outstanding situation. I'll quote F.G. Patterson on this. If we eat the Lord's Supper with unjudged sin upon us, we do not discern the Lord's body, which was broken, to put it away. We are called to confess our sins, to agree with God, remember. We have to have... I hate to use this word, but you know what I mean. A coming to Jesus in our souls. And we're supposed to do that before we partake in communion service. Why? Because of what we're celebrating. We're celebrating the embodiment of love and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. If we eat the Lord's Supper with unjudged sin upon us, we do not discern the Lord's body which was broken to put it away. All right, so I don't want to spend too much time on that. What's the purpose of all this work on love and forgiveness? Well, it's simple. We can go all the way back to our opening principle, which was think, say, or do. Religious Christians have bad thinking, but say and do righteous things. Pompous Christians have good thinking, quote-unquote, but say and do nothing righteous. Up here on the board. Thinking, saying, and doing, when enjoined together, are evidence that we are abiding in love. Because love expresses itself. That's the whole point. If we exclude one or more of these three, we must investigate where fear has crept in. Why are you not thinking straight? Why are you not saying the things you should be saying? Why are you not doing the things you should be doing? Because love, pure love, always does, thinks, says, and does Righteousness, the righteous thing. So if you're defunct on any one of these three, somehow fear is still there. Something is functioning in the domain of fear. And that takes some real introspection. I can't answer exactly why for each one of you, but that's what theology proper tells us. That's what the doctrine in the Word of God tells us. There is no fear in love. These are mutually exclusive things. Love does these things perfectly. Fear does things horribly. So if you're somewhere in between, there's some degree of fear still functioning in your life. Maybe you're afraid of rejection like we talked about on Sunday. I don't know. Maybe you don't want to approach somebody because you're afraid of being spit in the face. Maybe you don't want to um, seek forgiveness to someone that you've offended because you're afraid of the conversation. You're afraid of what is going to actually come out in the conversation. That's not love. 
Because love wants to reconcile. Love says, oh, this is going to hurt. Love says, this is going to hurt, but it's going to get the bad things out of the way. Because that's what love is interested in. That's what we've been developing here this evening. That's what love is interested in. It wants a pure sphere. That's heaven, right? The sphere of love. That's what it's interested in. It wants to preserve itself. Love says, no, 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 no. I don't want any of this garbage. I don't want splinters. I don't want unforgiveness. I don't want any of this. I don't want unrighteousness. I don't want fear. I don't want anything that the flesh brings to the table. Get that out of here. It's ruining everything. It's muddying the water. I just want simplicity and purity. I want love. I want love. And the flesh is antagonistic in every way. So if you're not thinking, saying, or doing, or any one of these things, or two of these things, or all three, fear is somehow involved because the flesh has somehow infiltrated the sphere of perfect love, which also forgiveness is in. So, I can't believe I'm almost out of time. The big picture impetus for this is the second half of our series titled, But the World Sees the Choices We Make. That's why we're doing all this. The world sees the choices we make. Our activities. I think many of us involved in this series have suffered from various forms of fear. That's fair. For example, as I just noted, the fear of rejection. That's a very strong fear, is it not? The fear of rejection to put yourself out there in a vulnerable situation. You're putting yourself in a vulnerable position when you function in love. Allow me to explain a little bit. And, and as I do, remember there's no fear in love. 1 John 4.18 Many of us are well-versed in Scripture, which is truly fantastic. For biblical reasons, many of us are well-versed in Scripture. We have a lot of knowledge. That's cool, right? I mean, that's awesome. I think it's fantastic. And so does the Bible. I mean, look at um, Psalm 111.10 up here in the board. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, a good understanding. Have all those who do His commandments. His praise endures forever. You've got to kind of know the commandments. You've got to actually pick up your Bible to actually read the commandments, find out what the commandments are. Knowledge, right? How about Proverbs 4.7? The beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom. And with all your acquiring, get understanding. So it's awesome to have understanding and even wisdom. If you recall, we spent a fair amount of time on that second passage, Proverbs 4.7, when we were studying the series, What is Good and Who Gets to Define It? That was a huge portion of it. It was like the kickoff verse, if I remember. Proverbs 4, 7. Let me, for clarity's sake, let me give you the Amplified Classic. I gave you this back then, actually, too. So you might, this might be familiar. Proverbs 4, 7, the Amplified Classic. The beginning of wisdom is, get wisdom, skillful and godly wisdom. For skillful and godly wisdom is the principal thing. And with all you have gotten, get understanding, discernment, comprehension, and interpretation. Those are all fantastic things. But what the Spirit's saying is it doesn't stop there. True wisdom actually ha is like love. It functions. So back to our key point. Many of us have suffered from the fear of rejection. So 
let's assume that many of us have a fair amount of knowledge. I think that's fair. I'm looking at all the faces. I think that's darn fair, given what comes from this pulpit and the, the um, amount that comes from this pulpit. Uh, by the way, I think about that sometimes. I'm in a weird way, you know, proud of you guys. It's, a lot comes from this pulpit. Side note, I know I'm digressing, but, and you all hang in there, and it's awesome. So anyways, many of us have suffered from the fear of rejection, yet we are well-versed in Scripture. In other words, we have an abundance of knowledge, but lack certain motivation to share it with others. So we have all this knowledge, maybe even a little wisdom, but we lack somehow something... <laughs> Remember, love, love can't help but express itself. So what's holding us back? Some kind of fear. Some kind of remnant of the flesh. What's holding us back? Why, why don't we share? Why are we not more like Paul, let's say, who just threw it all out there? People tried to kill him. How about Jesus Christ? They did kill him. Why don't we just throw it all out there? Why are we not motivated more? Um... If we accept that love cannot help but express itself, then we must concede that in this condition, we must be functioning in the opposite domain, which is the flesh's. That is fear. If love is functional and it can't help but express itself, but yet we don't and we have all this knowledge what can we conclude? We're afraid. Something scares us. That's between you and the Lord. I don't know what it is. Maybe you think you're going to ruin your, your uh, job possibilities. Maybe you think you're going to hit a glass ceiling because you're the outspoken Christian at work. Maybe you think you're going to lose friends. Maybe your friends don't want to talk about Jesus. I don't know. You're afraid of something. So the question then becomes, what are we afraid of exactly? Well, baseline argument is that we're afraid of some, we have some fear of rejection. The flesh is terribly um, self-preserving. Doesn't really like to get things torn away from it. Not interested in losing... Uh, Brownie points with the world. In America, you get a lot of um, accolades and even uh, monetary blessings for being like the world. You don't get a whole lot of that stuff when you're like Jesus. <laughs> Matter of fact, it becomes a struggle. Matter of fact, people are taking pot shots at you. But if you can learn to be that Dipsukos, that double-minded person who fears the repercussions of the world system, then you get to play that game. And you won't share your knowledge of the truth for fear of losing that game. Because to the flesh, that's what it's all about. We call that creature credit. That's what it's all about. It's about winning that game. But you know, and your flesh knows, that if you start spouting off knowledge about Jesus Christ, you're going to lose this game. You're going to be ejected from the game. 
you're no longer anyone that, I don't know, the world wants to promote. Because you're trumpeting something that makes the world look terrible, which it is. So what are you afraid of exactly? That's the big question. I would argue it's fear of rejection, at least as a baseline. But that's just a perspective issue because Jesus, who always had perfect perspective, you ready? Never feared rejection. Did Jesus, do we ever read in the Bible that Jesus Christ feared rejection? Nope. You know what the truth about it is? He expected it. He didn't fear it. He expected it. Those are two different things. Those are completely different things. Completely different perspectives. He didn't fear rejection. He knew he was going to get killed, as a matter of fact. He didn't fear rejection. He expected it. Which brings up an ancient, and I call it ancient in terms of our own ministry here. And I think I'll end here because I've got a minute left. Brings up an ancient principle from years ago. Disappointment, for example, feeling rejected, is nothing more than failed expectations. Disappointment, for example, feeling rejected, is nothing more than failed expectations. Jesus was never disappointed, you see, in the strictest sense of the word, because he knew what to expect from people. In John, the end of John 2, I think he says, I know the heart of man. I have no expectations. He knew, and so do you. So what are you disappointed? Why are you disappointed, feeling rejected? What has captured your mind? What has seeped into the sphere of love in your life? What is the flesh, how has the flesh infiltrated your system of thinking? How are you straddling the fence even in your own life? And then wondering, why am I disappointed all the time? And some people get so disappointed and so distraught that they become clinically depressed. Why are, we, why are you like that? There's no reason to be depressed if you expect everything that's coming your way. Do you know what I'm saying? There's no reason to be so disappointed. So the way to avoid disappointments altogether is to have the Bible set your expectations appropriately. And you can read John 15, 19 on your own, but I have to close. Again, the way to avoid disappointments altogether is to have the Bible set your expectations appropriately. Amen? All right, let's bow our, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this tremendous privilege to fellowship together in your Son's good name to live out a life that's reconciled to you, a life that we didn't deserve, we certainly didn't earn. Father, thank you for sending your Son who expressed love and forgiveness on the cross. We just ask uh, your blessings as we take the things we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.